Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, as we read verses 21 to 28. Hear now the word of God. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside And began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, open our eyes today by sending your spirit to illumine this text for us. Make us able and ready to hear your word. What you have to say here is actually a hard message. So we need your spirit to prepare our hearts to hear it. Uh, Protect us from that which would pull us away or distract us from having our souls fed by your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I remember hearing a theologian once claim that irony is God's favorite form of humor because irony is when human beings attempt to be great like God and fail spectacularly. Um, There is a famous YouTube channel that my family and I like to watch, uh, and it is just a series of fails. It is just people trying to do great things and falling flat on their faces. Now, I don't know if it's sinful that I enjoy watching this gray area, Uh, but there's nothing like watching somebody going for the greatest stunt you have ever seen, and if this person could land it, they would be the most impressive individual on the face of planet Earth, and they do it with such confidence and such pizzazz, but inevitably they end up going flat on their face at just the right moment, and uh, the thing that I think about is actually that quote where Irony is God's favorite form of humor because it is us trying to reach high, trying to reach up to be God, and yet we fail somehow. And today's passage is incredibly ironic um, because of what happened last week. If you remember last week in the passage, Peter uh, asked Jesus, or Peter answered Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? And Peter gave the right answer. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus said two incredible things. He said, first, the father revealed that to you. 
And then second, he said, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we dwelt on that last week. But third, Jesus gave him the keys of the kingdom. And it was this incredible high point for for Jesus, for the disciples, and and certainly for Peter as well. You can imagine how uh, impressive Peter must have felt in that moment. Now, hopefully he heard the words of Jesus and understood that it wasn't from Peter's own wisdom that he gave that answer. And hopefully he hears the truth that the father revealed that to him. But still, how the mighty can fall and how very quickly it is incredibly ironic what happens next. Because no sooner has Peter sort of started to believe, even in his own infallibility, it seems, than he falls flat on his face. It is ironic that this man seems to believe in his own spiritual strength and his own spiritual wisdom. And three verses later, he is told by Jesus, get behind me, Satan. Really, Jesus is keeping Peter's feet on the ground, isn't he? Um, Peter has a lot of ups and downs on this path from being a fisherman to being an evangel- the evangelist who preached the sermon at Pentecost that saw the conversion of thousands. He is a long way from being that man. But this this interaction sets the scene for the center of this entire passage, which comes in response from Jesus and is actually in this. Here's the center of it. It's this phrase right here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Everything else in the passage either is, is either the misunderstanding that presses Jesus to say that. Or it's the elaboration on the reason why they should do this. So in this passage, here's what we have. First, we have Jesus modeling the way of suffering. Second, he encounters resistance to suffering from Peter. And then third, Jesus teaches about the life of suffering. And so not only did did Jesus live a cross-centered life, but he calls us to follow the same way of life. He's calling us to a life of self-denial and Christ-centeredness and glorious blessings. That's what he's calling us to. So let's just go there. Let's follow along with what happens. First, Jesus teaches the way of suffering. And he teaches it by his own life and his own example. Look at verse 21 again. Here he starts not by talking about our suffering. He starts by talking about his From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So so notice that Jesus began to show these things to them. In other words, this is not the last time he's going to say this. Jesus is, this is becoming Jesus's new drumbeat with the disciples. He doesn't just say it once. He repeats it. It is becoming the thing that he never stops saying. Jesus is trying to impress upon the disciples something crucial. He came to die. He didn't come to rule as a king. He didn't come to lead a rebellion. He didn't come to do anything that gets in the way of this singular purpose to suffer and die. Notice the language again. It says, he must go. Look at that word. He must. There's this, there's this necessity that's spoken of here by Matthew. 
his suffering and death are not optional. They are not add-ons to his ministry. Instead, his suffering and death are intentional features of his ministry. Suffering is the way to death. Death is the way to resurrection. All of these things run through the cross, not around it. Um, I can't remember who it was. I think it was a family member of mine used to say, when something hard is in front of you, can't go around, got to go through. Can't go around, got to go through. Uh, That's what the cross is. Can't go around. You do not do an end run around the cross. Can't go around the cross, got to go through. The the cross is, is truly at the center of the reason why Jesus came. That's what he's saying. And the question is why? Why the cross? Why couldn't Jesus just will the things that he wanted? Because what is it that Jesus wants? He wants to save a people, right? He wants to rescue a people from their sins. Why couldn't he just will it? Why couldn't he will the salvation of people apart from his sacrifice? Why couldn't he simply call in legions of angels to do this for him? Or simply speak as at the beginning of creation and make it so. Why was the death of Jesus necessary? Why does the cross have to happen? Why does Jesus say he must go to Jerusalem and suffer these things? Or maybe we could put it another way. Jesus came not only to preach the good news. He came to achieve the good news. So his, his own life and ministry was essential to making the promises of the gospel come true. Let me explain why. Back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed and they fell, they got a promise. They were given a promise something would happen if they did that. And the thing that they were promised was death. Death was promised as a consequence of their disobedience And yet we also know that God was gracious to them. They spiritually died and they still physically died eventually. But they but they did live for a long time before that happened Um, over and over throughout history. God raised up men to rescue his people, to rescue Israel. He either raised up prophets or he raised up judges, but they led the nation. And what you notice throughout the Old Testament is sort of this repetition. You start to realize what's going on. They lead the nation, but they don't change the hearts of the people. And they don't address the the fallenness of Israel. They show the need for sacrifices. They show the need for one to come and to cleanse them. But they don't actually accomplish it. And so the whole Old Testament is God showing us that earthly kings and rulers are not the end the end goal. They are not the thing that's going to help if they, if they can't address the wrongness of our heart or our guilt or our sin. And so throughout the Old Testament, God is teaching Israel a number of lessons that bring us to the cross. And they explain why Jesus couldn't simply will the gospel apart from his own death. So first, He teaches Israel that they're helpless apart from God's word. That's what God is doing in the Old Testament. He's showing them that if he doesn't speak, then they are blind. And that's why they need the prophets. So what does he do? He sends prophets over and over again, reminding Israel, you need me to speak to you. Then second, he teaches them that their sin is worthy of death and it deserves death. And that if God is not holy, he cannot forgive sin without the shedding of blood. We are, if God is to be holy, 
He can't forgive without the shedding of blood. We are guilty and our guilt has to be faced. The guilty must face their guilt. Blood has to be shed. Third, he's teaching Israel through the Old Testament that the priesthood, through the priesthood, that he accepts substitutes in the place of people when they sin. This is one of the things that you see in the book of Leviticus. The whole book of Leviticus is teaching God's people that God will accept a substitute in their place. That they, when they sin, their sin must be punished, blood must be shed. And Leviticus is God's way of saying, I will forgive you through the blood of another. Then fourth, he teaches them that the humans have to bear the guilt of their own sin if they do not have a substitute. In other words, if you don't have a substitute, you must face judgment. Then fifth, he's teaching them that someone is coming who is greater than all the prophets and greater than all the kings that he's ever raised up and greater than all the priests that he has ever used in his ministry. What Israel is learning is that they need a prophet a priest and a king who is not stained by sin, but who is also a mortal, a man, one of them. And he also needed to be infinite. He needed to be mortal and he needed to be more than a mortal. And because their sin was so great, it was so infinite in its offense to God, the death of a man who was also infinite was needed. Nothing else could erase the stain of sin Nothing else could free people from sin's guilt and sin's power. And God also had to remain holy and righteous. We sang at the very beginning, holy, holy, holy. A God who is holy, holy, holy cannot simply look at sin and wink at it to steal from R.C. Sproul. He cannot simply wink at sin. All of Israel's history, if you wanted to summarize the Old Testament, all of Israel's history is God laying the groundwork for this message. And the message of Jesus was, the kingdom of heaven has come. And the fulfillment of the prophets and the priests and the kings has come. And he pointed to himself and he said, I'm here. Come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will forgive you. Come to me and I will take your yoke upon me. Just like I have been promising to do for centuries through the prophets. And now I'm here. But the only way that can be done is through the cross. Because anything else than the cross meant that he wasn't the suffering servant. It would mean that he wasn't the one who experienced Israel's punishments, people's punishments, the very real punishment that sin deserves. And if he didn't suffer, then you and I would still be in our sins today. Jesus did not suffer simply for the sake of suffering or to say that he suffered. His suffering was for a purpose to redeem people from all nations. To save people for himself. It's a truth that, that is held out to us even now, even today. Jesus has died. Jesus is risen. Jesus will come again. And the promise of scripture is that because he died, if you trust in him to save you, his suffering will cover over the guilt of your sins and God will save you. He will forgive you. It's the reason Jesus came. He came to save people like us because we have sinned and because we do sin 
and because we continue to sin the side of the cross. Our need for Jesus never diminishes. It only grows greater. And so one of the messages of Jesus' ministry is cast yourself upon Jesus and you will find your life. As Jesus says later in this passage, cast yourself upon Jesus and you will find life. This is the thing Jesus is saying in verse 21 that the disciples cannot see and cannot appreciate. He's speaking very plainly to them. Like like we read this now and you think, how do you miss this? He said, I'm going to suffer. He said, I'm going to die. He said, I'm going to rise again. He's, He's not hiding anything. He's being very direct. He's being very plain. You know, it's all right there for them to see. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. I think all of us, we read that and we can't even imagine how you, you miss it. None of this is obscure. None of this is hard to understand this side of the cross. He's, he's speaking so plainly, but the disciples struggle to take it in. Um, they're along for the ride. They are along for him and who he is, but they aren't along for the mission. They're along for him. They're not along for the mission, not yet. And that's what we'll see in the next point. So let's go to that second point. Um, second this morning, Jesus encounters resistance to suffering. We see this in verse 22. Um, no sooner has Jesus spoken about the cross, spoken about his death and resurrection, than he hears an incredibly disheartening rebuke from everyone's favorite outspoken disciple. It's Peter. And in verse 22, is that Peter took him aside. I mean, it's almost outrageous to read it. <laughs> Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Uh, I was talking with, uh, we were going through the, um, uh, the family worship guide for this last week. And one of the questions sort of centered around the idea of rebuke. Have you ever had to rebuke somebody? Have you ever had to tell someone that they were wrong? And we talked about maybe times where, where maybe we had to do that. And it's a big deal to rebuke somebody. If you've ever rebuked somebody, um, then you know that it is. And especially, you know what's really hard as a, as a pastor is rebuking someone who's older than you. Um, in the New Testament, uh, the apostles write about the, the great gravity of doing that as a younger person uh, and, and needing to confront someone who's older in the faith. It's a very important that you do it well and carefully. And, and here Peter is, and he's, Peter's going to do a rebuke, except he's not rebuking someone uh, who is a peer, he's rebuking Jesus. Just think of the, the temerity of it, if, if I could use a word that you don't hear very often. Think of the temerity of rebuking Jesus. And so here's his rebuke. He says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Uh, Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I think so often we're, we're bowled over by Jesus' response. We don't actually think much about what Peter says that gets him in this hot water here. Um, I don't want to belabor this, but I, I already mentioned it when we began. But this is only three verses after the high point of Peter. Where Jesus made that amazing pronouncement about the church that he was building. And then Peter immediately says, this shall never happen to you. As if, Peter, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Think of... Think of 
What must you believe about your own press to tell Jesus he's wrong? And Peter does. Peter is not as wise in understanding as he's begun to believe. And we see this because Jesus responds with such force. Get behind me, Satan. It's impossible to write that without an exclamation mark. Why the forceful response? Well, think about this. This is at least the second time that Jesus has heard someone say to him, you don't have to suffer. There's another way. This is at least the second time. And the first time we know happened in his temptation in the desert after he was baptized. And the person who spoke to him at that point was Satan. It says, Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. What was Satan's temptation there? He was saying, you can have the glory without the cross. You don't have to die. You don't have to suffer. You can, you can short circuit this. You can, you can follow the loophole. You can do this on a technicality. And the answer that Jesus gives to Peter is nearly identical to how he responded to the devil at the beginning of his ministry. And the answer is, be gone. Right? This temptation has haunted Jesus all of his public ministry from the beginning, after his baptism, up until this point. Right? Satan is just singing it in his ear. You can achieve your ends comfortably. You can have the crown without the cross. You can have it all, Jesus. There's no need for sacrifice. Don't believe the lie that you have to die. And remember, in all of this, you know, we think of Jesus, we think of him so robotically, or at least we can think of him so robotically. Jesus was not a robot. Jesus was not some avatar just sort of beamed down and living among us temporarily, right? He wasn't a a salvation machine who just went through the motions and followed the script. Instead, he, he was a man who had real emotions and real motivations and real fears. One of the things you could do is just go through the scriptures and study the emotional life of Jesus. And you find that he experiences pain and he experiences fear over and over in the gospels. He has a rich emotional life because he's one of us. And so the temptation to avoid pain and suffering, it's not an abstract possibility. It, it's, a, it's, it's an appeal to something very human. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to hurt. I don't want to experience loss. Think of this for Jesus. I don't want to know separation from my heavenly father. Right? This, this temptation from Peter, what re, it needed such a violent response because it was such a salient temptation. It was such a, a live option that appealed to him on some level. It was a realistic temptation. It wasn't an absurd temptation. The more realistic a temptation, the more forcefully we need to respond because it's so close to us. Um, Martin Luther was famous for the forceful way he would respond to demonic attack or temptation. And sort of as modern people, we sort of look back at Luther and laugh. Um, We shouldn't. Uh, He would, of course, pray when he was tempted, but he would also sing what he called a happy song. I want to know what a Luther happy song sounds like. Just imagining this kind of chubby German man singing a happy little German song to himself. Um, But he was also known to respond in other ways. He was known to throw his inkwell. He was known to deploy 
other bodily functions uh, to drive away the demons. Uh, I think today we might feel a little bit too sophisticated for this. We might think it's ridiculous, but perhaps Luther took temptation more seriously than we do. Um, perhaps in some ways we could do well with a dose of resistance to temptation like, like Luther had or like we see from Jesus here. Look at how much these men hated sin. And Peter presents Jesus with this temptation partly because he still doesn't see what Jesus is here for. Right? I mentioned it before. Peter is here for the person of Jesus. He is not here yet for the mission of Jesus. He's not on board with the mission. He hasn't understood what Jesus was doing. Uh, and Jesus is telling him, he's saying, I have to die for your sins. I have to be raised up. Suffering is coming. It's not optional. And Peter hears that. And all Peter sees in that is bad news. He doesn't see good news. It's ugly to him. It's not beautiful. And yet the cross, in all its horror and ugliness, is beautiful because it embodies the fullness of who God is. Think of this. The cross is a display of the wisdom of God. Only God could have devised a way by which he could be perfectly holy, unstained by sin, uh, perfectly punish sin, and let sinners go free without doing violence to his own integrity and holiness and goodness. And that's what the cross is. To put it another way, at the cross, God forgives and he does it without winking at sin. He does it without winking at sin. He actually substantively deals with sin at the cross. Only God could have devised a way in which his son enters the world at just the right time to experience all that is necessary for our salvation. And then at the cross, what happens? Jesus satisfies the holiness of God and the mercy of God all at once, right? The, at the cross, God is merciful and kind, but he is holy and just. And you would think that his holiness and his kindness are at odds with each other. And yet at the cross, they embrace. Do you see the beauty of that? I, I hope you do. It's what Jesus sees. It's why... It's why Jesus is willing to keep moving forward. He's willing to keep approaching Jerusalem, even though he knows what is waiting for him there. It is a mission that Jesus loves. Jesus is here for it. He is on board. He is ready to do this. He's come to terms with it. He is ready. He's doing this. He's determined. He sets his face like flint. And it's why the response of Jesus to any temptation away from the cross is so violent. By this point, Jesus has steeled his own resolve. He's, he's ready to suffer. Uh, Hebrews 12.2 reminds us of Jesus' own resolve here. The, the author of Hebrews calls Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Peter sees a cross. Jesus sees a throne. Peter sees suffering. Jesus sees rescue and joy for his people. Peter sees shame. Jesus sees glory. And see, here's the problem for Jesus. If Peter never sees this, Peter will never be willing to suffer. 
Notice how quickly he moves here from his own suffering to the suffering of Peter because he knows what this is really about. And and if we don't see this, if we do not see the connection between the suffering of Jesus and our own suffering, then we're going to resist and flee from suffering as well. And we're going to think that suffering is a malfunction instead of a part of the plan. So let's go right to, to the third point here, which is the life of suffering. The temptation to escape suffering comes to Peter through a failure to appreciate what the cross really means. For Peter, the cross means death. For Peter, the cross means failure. For Peter, the cross is just horror and failure with no blessings attached. You know, he lives in the first century. He knows exactly what the cross is. We think of the cross as some beautiful ornament, something to decorate our homes or hang around our necks. Uh, even though we intellectually are told that the cross was horrible, we don't have these, these gut associations with the cross that a first century person would have. Um, crosses were hor- horrible, nightmarish torture devices. And when anybody thought of the cross, they didn't think of something really pleasant or profound. All they thought of was the cruelty of Rome. All they thought of was the inventiveness of human horror. Um, crucifixion was so horrible, Romans wouldn't even let Roman citizens be executed. If you were a Roman citizen and you did something worthy of death, they would cut your head off because they were kind. Think about that. And then if you weren't a Roman citizen and you were naughty, you'd be crucified. And so Peter, Peter is more realistic about what the cross is than we are, right? So we look back, we judge Peter. But if we had the associations with the cross that Peter does, perhaps we would associate more with how he feels. Peter doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. And so he resists. It seems that Peter is not just afraid for Jesus. He's afraid for himself. And and that's part of what motivates his denial here. Right? He's hitched his own wagon to Jesus' star. If if Jesus is going to die, if Jesus is going to suffer then it is totally reasonable for Peter to wonder, wait, if he's the master and I'm following him and I'm his follower, then that means this is a suicide mission, right? And Peter's not ready for that. He's not ready to die. Uh, Remember, there is misunderstanding about the mission of Jesus here. Peter and the disciples still believe this is an earthly kingdom that's being built here and they are very excited to be part of it. And so Peter is not ready to suffer. He doesn't even see how that fits into the picture he doesn't want to hurt. This is really about Peter. You know, you see from the response of Jesus that he knows this is really about Peter. Because, because what does he do? He instantly ministers to Peter in his own motivations. He doesn't even say like, I'm fine, I'm ready. He goes straight to Peter. Um, Peter doesn't want to give up his life. Peter is not ready. He's got plans. He's got dreams. Um, he has his own ideas about what life is supposed to be. And Peter is very perceptive. He's been with this man for a number of years now. He, he sees what's going on. He sees what Peter won't give up. Peter seems to want to be close to the Christ, son of the living God, who will conquer Rome, establish an earthly kingdom, make his 12 apostles earthly regents over the earth, while Jesus rules in power from a throne room in Jerusalem. That's what Peter is on board for. That's what Peter wants. He wants a world where Peter gets to be the rock and the cornerstone of the church on earth. That's what he wants. 
this, this talk about suffering, this talk about dying, it doesn't fit with what he signed up for at this point. He knows who Jesus is. He doesn't know what Jesus is doing. Think of, think of Peter's denial of Jesus later on. Jesus is in the courtyard. He's being beaten. He's being mocked before the high priest. Peter wants to live. See, Peter, Peter lies and says he doesn't know Jesus. Why? Because he fears men. Because he's made of flesh like us. He's afraid of the, the same sorts of things that all of us are afraid of. All of this is a very present danger. Here's the danger. That the hope for earthly power and the fear of earthly pain means that Peter will get in the way of Jesus' mission. Suffering is the way. Love of comfort and love of power and fear of pain are obstacles to the cross. That's why Jesus responds to Peter, not only by saying, get behind me, Satan, but then ministering to his heart and his motivation and positively teaching what he needs in his own life and in his own heart. So look how he does this in verse 24. He, he gives an answer that applies to Peter and to everybody else. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus is teaching something that if you understand it and you believe it and, you, and it is a part of your soul, then you are ready to lose. Um, if this truth becomes a part of your thinking and, and part of your deepest convictions that motivate and drive you, you are ready for anything that comes. But that means giving up your own plans. And it means letting God be God over you. And it means loving his plan for your life more than your own plan. I mean, think of, think of how counterintuitive, think about how upside down what Jesus says is, right? I save my own life, I lose it. I mean, say, tell that to the world and, and they're just lost, right? Save my life, lose it. It doesn't seem like a very, that doesn't, that's not how I think. I think, save my life, I gain it. That's how I think. Save my life, I gain it. I live to see another day. That's gain, right? That's how the world works. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I save my life, I lose it. I lose my life, I gain it. He is totally reversing the way that we naturally think apart from Jesus. Apart from special revelation, we would not think this. See, we, it's because we don't know what life is, right? That's actually the key here. I save my life, I lose it. I lose my life, I gain it. I think we don't know what it means to gain life because we still think like the world. We still think in physical terms. We still think in terms of our life the way we want it. But Jesus says the life that you get by losing it is the life that's worth having. So we misunderstand real life. We misunderstand what matters. We misunderstand Jesus' plan for us when we believe that God intends earthly glory and earthly comfort for us. But we want to believe that. Peter wanted to believe that. It's so easy to naturally want to believe that, that, that Jesus' is best for me is a very comfortable life. But what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, prepare yourself for the cross. Take it up each day. Your life should not look like your life. It should look like my life. 
We have to reckon with suffering. We have to. Every single worldview out there has to deal with the problem of pain and the problem of suffering. Um, Buddhism handles the problem of pain by ignoring it, by denying its reality, by saying that it is an illusion. Um, Atheism has a problem of pain too. We don't always think of that. Sometimes atheists try to sort of put it to Christians and say, you know, as a Christian, you really have a problem because there's suffering in this world and there's a God. Tell me how that makes sense. Well, atheists have a problem too. They have a problem of pain because just because they think they have an argument to make doesn't mean that they don't have a problem that they need to answer too. In an atheistic universe, all pain is is a chemical reaction in a body. And suffering is how the strong organisms survive and how they become stronger. There is a problem of pain in an atheistic universe as well. Why is it that human beings are valuable? Why is it that when a human being dies, we are crushed? Why is it that when a person dies, we realize that something significant has happened? See, in an atheistic universe, there is great sentimentality and, we can, and they cannot explain it. Why do I care when a bag of biology fades away and goes into the dust? There's a problem of pain for that worldview. Every worldview has to reckon with pain, has to reckon with suffering. The Christian worldview gives an answer. What Christ does is he says, God is not aloof from pain. He does not deny the reality of pain. Instead, God enters into the experience of pain in the person of Christ. Only in Christianity does God taste the same agonies we all taste and experience the sufferings that we experience. Only in Christianity. Here's what's so significant. Jesus says, your life must be cross-shaped. He doesn't say that it's an optional way to go. If you want to be really serious about the things of God, you could be one of those Christians who is willing to suffer. He doesn't make it optional because he says this is the path of life. He says, if you build your life around living and gaining, you'll gain something, but it won't be true life. But if you carry whatever cross Jesus places upon you and you fix your eyes on him, you will gain everything that matters. If you don't embrace Christ, because if you don't embrace suffering, then you can't embrace Christ. Because when you embrace him, you're embracing suffering. You can't reject suffering and also embrace the suffering one. Only by suffering does he carry the punishment that our sin deserves. We must embrace the suffering one. Without the cross, there's no forgiveness. Without the cross, there's no glory. Um, Jesus talks about that glory in verses 27 and 28. He talks about him returning and repaying each person according to what he's done. And actually, in verse 28, he gives us a preview of what we're going to see next week in the transfiguration. He has his eyes on glory. But those things cannot happen without the cross. See, here's the truth. If we... If we misunderstand the cross, then we fail to understand Christ's suffering. And if we misunderstand the cross, then we fail to understand our own suffering. Jesus had to come to terms with his suffering, and he calls us to do the same. And there's coming a day where we will be able to think back on, reflect back on the suffering we experience and the things that we are going through, or the things that we haven't gone through yet, but that we're going to. There is no living in this life without suffering. All of us will pass through it. All of us will pass through that veil. 
But I love how Randy Alcorn says this. He says, one day, God's children will look back on this life with complete clarity. When we do, I believe we will see that our only true sacrifices were when we chose sin instead of Jesus. The sacrifice of following Jesus produces the greatest, most lasting happiness, both here and now and forever. This is the message Jesus has for Peter, and and it's the message he has for all of us as well. The message is embrace the cross. Embrace Jesus, not because the cross is pleasant, but because it's worth it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the only way that we can carry the cross is because you carried it first. The only reason we can endure suffering is that we know you endured it first. The path that you call us to is the one you walked first. And so we ask that by your spirit's power and by your spirit's persuasion, you would work in our hearts so that we are ready and willing to realize your plans for our life even if they should involve hardship and pain. Remind us that you ask nothing of us that you yourself haven't gone through first. Make us willing to sacrifice. Help us to embrace your cross. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.